Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. And we have been doing this for more than 355 episodes, Tim. 355 episodes without any corporate sponsors or advertisers to provide us with that flexibility to do this as a full-time job. So this is our second job, Mr. Houlihan, second job. Late nights, you know, Saturdays, weekends. Why? Yeah. Why do you think that is, Tim? Why do we do this? Um, because we're a bit dense. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, we are a bit. Actually, we're more than a bit. Uh, more than a bit dense. We are a lot dense, or however you would say that, right? I'm too dense to know. Um, but more importantly, we create behavioral grooves every week because we love it. We love learning. We love talking to smart people. We love sharing great stories of applying behavioral science in the wild. And we love being the guys who inspire people to use behavioral science to improve their lives and their communities. Yeah. And that's what we're up to today. We're talking to a very smart person, mm-hmm. Alex Emus. But before we get to our conversation with Alex, we need to do a little shout out to a couple of groovers who pointed out an error that we need to correct. Wait, Tim, we, we made an error? <laughs> What? You asked that like we've never made an error. Oh my God, how could, we don't make errors, do we? Oh wait, it's Dude. us. Yes, we do. And this, this is not like this is the first. <laughs> We're human and we do it all the time. And uh, we've done it plenty of times on the podcast as well. But this time, fortunately, we had a couple of groovers pointed out and we're grateful to them. So much so that it relieved my headache, not my upset stomach. <laughs> Clever, clever, Mr. Lillahan. So you must be talking about our conversation with Nancy Harhut, where Nancy accidentally said that the advertising message of pop, pop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is, tried to get the jingle there, not very well, um, was for the -the over-the-counter stomach medication, Pepto-Bismol. Yeah, and I repeated it in our grooving session totally without thinking. Yep, and so it wasn't Pepto-Bismol. It was actually the -the over-the-counter headache relief medicine Alka-Seltzer. Exactly. And our very thoughtful groovers, Jim Nelson and Tony Navarra, let us know that we made the error and pointed out the correct product for the correct tagline. So, by the way, the reason that we made the error isn't that we're too young. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Both Kurt and I grew up in the days when those ads played relentlessly on TV screens in front of our very impressionable faces. Yeah. yeah. The problem, Tim, isn't that we're too, is that we're too old and our, our decrepit brains misattributed the taglines. It's the, <laughs> yeah. the fact that we're too old to remember that. Yeah. Okay. So sorry for the error. And thanks to Tony and Jim for helping us get the facts. And, and a shout out to Jim for also giving us a, a jingle, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the, yeah. remember, Nancy's talking about jingles. And so Jim Nelson gave us this jingle. Better get a move on. Time to get your groove on. Right? Isn't that? Very that, nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. It's got that rhyme is reason effect. Yeah, Absolutely. Better get a move on. It's time to get your groove on. I like it. Okay. I think you might have oh. to start every episode with that. So Let's get back to Alex. <laughs> okay, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> Alex Emus is an associate professor of behavioral science and economics and a Vassalou faculty scholar at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He's an Ember faculty research fellow and is most recently a Sloan fellow, which we'll talk a bit about with him in the conversation when we get to that. Yeah. 
Also, Alex was first a guest on Behavior Grooves way back in episode 71, back in May of 2019. We talked to him while we were making a sweep through the social and decision science department at Carnegie Mellon University. Most importantly, Alex is doing some important work on discrimination in the workplace. He and his colleagues are trying to understand the effects of discrimination throughout the entire organization and not just in the hiring process. Yeah, their work is shedding more light on pay inequality and introduces evidence to counteract the common narrative that women, on average, are achieving pay equality in the corporate world. He actually talks more about that in our conversation with him, and we we hope that you'll listen to it and and enjoy it. Uh, So with that, Groovers, we hope that you sit back with a fresh pour of your favorite anti-discrimination research and enjoy our conversation with Alex Emus. Alex Emus, welcome back to Behavioral Grooves. I'm super happy to be back. Thanks so much for having me again. It's just so great to see you and to see you kind of in this uh, this new life and all that's going on. And and you know that we started with a speed round. So I just going back to our music discussion from, from last time, and I just want to know, would you prefer to have dinner with Bob Dylan or Tom Waits? Tom Waits. <laughs> there wasn't even a pause there. That was... Just, I love it, my Dylan. I, I have all yeah. his records, but I yeah. mean... It's not. It's not a difficult decision. Okay. Why? Why? Why is wait? This such is a, a speed round, Tim. Okay. All right. You all can right. hold that question for the end. Come on. He's well, got my favorite. They, they have my, but they both have my favorite two quotes of all time. But I like the Tom Waits one slightly more. <laughs> all right. We have to come back to that. All right. Okay, so we will so come speed back. round question number two. Which is better, weather, Pittsburgh or Chicago? Chicago. Uh, (laughs) even though it's so windy yeah much sunnier yeah pittsburgh's one of the the cloudiest uh, places in the country but i love pittsburgh i i love the city but weather chicago yeah yeah okay well which has a better music scene pittsburgh or chicago chicago (laughs) i would have bet on that i would have actually bet on that but i don't know much about the pittsburgh music scene so like, it's it- fun. It's a fun scene. Um, it's it's a uh, it skews towards punk, post punk. Yeah. Uh, have has pretty good metal, but the pro the issue with the Pittsburgh music scene is that a lot of the bands just kind of fly over it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, which yeah. was a huge bummer when I was there. Yeah. yeah. Tim, we had one of the best conversations with a Lyft driver in Pittsburgh. Do you remember the bass in Pittsburgh? The a, the yeah. jazz bassist that was like putting on anyway. Um, so I was he played I was with Coleman Hawkins. Yeah, this was a, a jazz bass player. He was a, he's an old man, and he had played with Coleman Hawkins. And it's like man, and now he's driving Lyft because and that was his main gig. Like he wasn't yeah. hardly playing music anymore. It's like so sad. I could talk for a long time about what happened to Pittsburgh jazz. Yeah, yeah. Well, again. Hold this okay. up. We're in we're in speed round. We're, we got to get <laughs> okay. going. Sorry, I I diverged us there. So, all right, Alex. Last last speed round question: Does a consumer's willingness to pay grow as the product's appeal to others increases if more people are excluded or encouraged to buy that product? Excluded, given the data. 
given the data. Uh, it, depends, it depends. I'm I'm going to use that word a lot. I, I know. This is like, a, we can't nail people down on these things. It, because here, here's the thing. Let's say like the quality is uncertain. I'm not really sure what I'm buying and I'm seeing a, a bunch of other people buy something. Then, then it's, you know, if I'm seeing a bunch of other people buy it, then I'm going to infer it's a good thing. I'm going to start buying it too. So that's why it depends. If all else equal, I know how good the good is. I am certain about the utility I'm going to get from it. Then exclusion helps. But um, when you throw in uncertainty, it becomes a lot more complicated. Well, I know we're going to talk about music later, and I know we're going to talk about Sloan and some other things later, but I want to talk about uh, this a little bit more because you've written a paper on this and you've done some work on, on exclusivity. So can you talk a little bit about that research that you've done? Yeah, so this is work that I have with with Christoph Madarash, who's a kind of a long, a long running co-author of mine. The first, one of the first co-authors I've ever had, actually, from London, right? Isn't he from in... LSC? Yeah. yeah, we yeah. we met at a conference when I was like a second year grad student, and we started working together, uh, which has been a lot of fun. Um, so this paper kind of started up with this idea that Christoph and I started chatting about that a lot of kind of social preference research and behavioral. And standard economics is about how people are altruistic or pro-social, but we also kind of see some like nasty stuff out there, <laughs> right? So people being spiteful to each other, angry, resentful, jealous, and that's not really in behavioral or econ. And Christoph and I started thinking about it, and to us, it became very interesting, this idea that exclusivity or actual exclusion was potentially driving some interesting behavior. So for example, you know, when we're thinking about like nationalism, protectionism, uh, a lot of the things that are unfortunately becoming very prominent in our society right now, these things are all based about on exclusion, right? Mm. So we are excluding somebody else from a market, from uh, even human rights, certain aspects that we have. This became particularly one of the examples that that Christoph and I like using were um, you know, there was the these tariffs on soybean farmers uh, during the Trump administration. And this was hurting bottom lines, but the soybean farmers weren't necessarily against these, mm. against Trump. They were, they were, this wasn't changing. And this was being written up as this like irrational response. But in fact, like, you know, they might've been that a large part of the population is, likes the fact that we have protectionism and nationalism and things like that. So that's kind of how the project started this idea that you can have exclusion and exclusivity, uh, actually driving demand, increasing the value that people get from something, knowing that there's other people who want it but can't have it. So it's the it's a very simple kind of idea, right? I have a mug. It's kind of a unique mug. I like it. But if I know that you want it a lot, but for whatever reason you can't have it, I actually like the mug more. And it's a really simple idea. So we put it into an economic model and we kind of derive the input, what happens to like markets, to auctions, to uh, simple trade between me and you. And we derive a bunch of really interesting predictions. Like for example, it generates a social endowment effect. Like for example, if I know that you want the mug more than I do, that's why you're willing to buy it. I'm actually less willing to sell it to you. <laughs> because if you get it, then I get I, all of this type of like exclusivity and all of this extra utility that I get goes away. So I need to be compensated for that. Now, right? Is that mostly in the bad actors or is that is that just present in 
for, for the lack of a better term in all of us. So that's, that's what, so part of what we did in the paper was we have a bunch of experiments in it. So we could actually measure like what percentage of the population exhibits this effect. So the very simple idea is, let's say everybody kind of goes into the lab and everybody gets randomized to different stations and we're selling a t-shirt that we just made for the experiment. Okay. In one condition, we're like, all right, everybody who wants to buy the t-shirt, put in your maximum willingness to pay for this t-shirt. Everybody puts in a t-shirt, their willingness to pay, and that's it. In the other condition, we say, I'm going to roll a die, and I'm going to select one, two, three of these people. They can't buy it. It doesn't matter what their willingness to pay for it is. You can't have it. And then we get the willingness to pay from the people who can potentially have it. Turns out the willingness to pay in that condition almost doubles. The people... <laughs> Which is like kind of crazy, right? But we replicated a couple times. We ran it on online. We actually created our own online store to sell an art print of a painting I made. <laughs> so uh, wow! And we were selling these art prints, and the only thing we did was like, you know, here's you're in a group. All of you guys can buy this painting, or three of you can buy it, and one person can't, or two of you can buy it, and two people can't. And as the number of people who can't buy the painting increased. The, num- the willingness to pay amongst those who can buy the painting increased as well by a lot. Which is counterintuitive to a little way because the you've limited demand now. Right. Supply's the same. Demand has gone down because you've limited it by, you know, decree. So you know, classical economic theory would again say it should be going in the opposite direction, Right. Am I, well, am I getting as that far right? as revenue, as far as revenue for the firm, yeah. right? That's that is exactly what economic theory would say. So we actually have an experiment where we draw out of demand curve for monopolist us. Yeah. Let's say we're a monopolist. We're we're the only people in the market. We can actually draw a demand curve from eliciting enough willingness to pay us in the population. In one case, where everybody can buy it. In the other case, where only sixty percent of the market can buy it. Right. That's a big, big decrease. But we can show that basically if it costs us any more than $2 to make this product, the marginal cost is greater than 2 then actually we would lose money by allowing everybody to buy it. <laughs> because the drop in demand from this exclusivity would be so high that it would overcome uh, this, uh, the increase in the, in, the, in the consumer pool. And yeah, so that was, that was that, and you know, these types of things aren't just in the lab. Like we were really motivated by, you know, Cialdini has this uh, really influential uh, book called um, Influence. Yep. Uh, And there he talks about like kind of the, the pillars of marketing. Like how do you have influence? One of them is scarcity. Yeah. Is basically inducing the idea that there's other people out there who want the thing that you're about to get, but they can't have it for whatever reason. That's one of the pillars of increasing demand is doing something like this. And what we show, we basically provide very, in my opinion, kind of striking evidence for it, given the effects that we're finding. But a key part of this is this uh, idea that there is something that is desirable, right? Mm-hmm. Does it, it starts with a desirability, right? Because we, there's a lot of things in the market that there's just a few of that a lot of people just don't care about. Yes. So how do we connect or... Or where do we connect this? I, I want it gets to be enough. They're, they're like, is there like a tipping point on the, I, you know, of enough people saying, yeah, that is desirable. Yeah. So it needs to be something that other, the way that it 
has to work, and we actually show this in the paper, is that you it's not that other people can't have something. Like, you know, let, let's say I got a pile of dirt and I say like, hey, nobody else can have this pile of dirt. It's yours. If I don't think anybody else wants that pile of dirt, I'm not going to want it anymore. <laughs> right. It right. really has to be about the fact that I think that there's others who want it more than I do. It's about access desire. Access desire. And that's the key part of the model. And if there's access desire and exclusivity, that's when demand goes up. So it has to be something that people want. That We actually show that in the paper. When you actually elicit people's desires for a good, the only way it works is when you tell you people either believe that other people there's enough people who want it more than they do or you tell them look there's enough people who want it more than you do if you wow. tell them look actually the people in your group want it less than you do but they can't have it <laughs> that, that doesn't work yeah they have to want it yes exactly they, they have desire is a key part of it so actually the first title of the paper was mimetic dominance through desire <laughs> it's the idea that you want to, that it's like so the, the final title was superiority seeking, but the idea is that you are getting utility from other people's desires for good. Yeah. Fascinating. So it really is. I want to switch over to one of the things that uh, reconnected us was uh, noticing that you were uh, the recipient of a Sloan fellowship and uh, congratulations to you, you. On, on that. That's kind of a BFD. And uh, I mean, not too many people get that, right? So tell us about how has it changed your focus or your research or who you collaborate with? Have there been any things that it's opened you up to that weren't available to you? Before that, can you, for our listeners who don't know what a Sloan is, can you just briefly overview the Sloan Fellowship? Uh, the Sloan Fellowship is a, uh, a two-year fellowship where you get a certain amount of money for, for your research. Um, and it's given to young researchers. I'm not sure if I'm young, but I don't feel young. <laughs> Let's just say you look you young. You are very, yeah. <laughs> they have classified me as young. It's pre-tenure, basically. Yeah. Pre-tenured researchers. And um, it, it goes, it's across fields. So there's people in biology, there's folks in chemistry uh, who get the fellowship. And in economics, there's eight people who get it every single year from kind of across the board. And I was lucky enough to uh, get one of them. So it's it's across all fields of economics. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you have macro economists, theorists, labor economists in there. Okay. So what kind of impact is it having on you in terms of the way you're thinking about your research, how you're actually acting on it, who you collaborate with, all those kinds of things? Any, any changes? So it, it hasn't started yet, for one thing. So no. it starts in September. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So, uh, but but one thing that it has done, uh, which I, I, I was, that that's the part that I was kind of happiest about, was the fact that, you know, as I said, it's, it's kind of across the board for economics. And for me as a behavioral economist, and there have been, I'm not the first behavioral economist to, to get it, of course, but to get it, to, to kind of have my research, which is skews very, very behavioral. Um, you know, I collaborate with psychologists a lot. I'm not in an economics department. I'm in a behavioral science department. For me to get it, that that was kind of like a big, you know, it's hard to say the word val validation is a loaded word, but it, it does feel like a validation from the field that economists value the contributions that I'm making to to the extent that I got the award. I, I don't can't speak past that. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting as we were talking about prior to, you know, re recording about how 
you know, Richard Thaler, who I think he he nominated you for the award, right? But, mm-hmm. it, you know, he had uh, famously talked about that, hey, let's make sure that the ideal for behavioral economics is just to be economics, right? And that it is going to be integrated into that. And we were talking about behavioral science and some of the work that Tim and I have been, you know, doing and seeing in um, organizations around is like they have a behavioral science department, but ultimately that that is probably going to be more of an integration of the insights and that knowledge into the other functions, finance, HR, marketing, et cetera. And you're seeing that, uh, we talked a little bit, you're seeing some of that maybe even happening inside of universities now. Is that, am I misquoting that or is that that's Yeah, so for sure. So Richard has kind of always talked about the fact that the success of behavioral economics is going to be measured when it disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's basically becomes economics. So labor economists think about incorrect beliefs and uh, loss aversion and hyperbolic discounting and yep. all of these sorts of things. And it's not a separate part of an econ department. It's just the, the econ department. And I think that's becoming true more and more. So you go to kind of like a I'm, – I'm, I'm part of the kind of the asset pricing group at NBR. And you go to a, an asset pricing meeting at the NBR – and you're seeing more and more people incorporating kind of extrapolative beliefs into models, um, which are incorrect. Thinking about things like, you know, people have thought about bubbles for a long time, yeah. but thinking about bubbles from a beha- much more behavioral perspective. Uh, you see this in like, you know, many talks that aren't necessarily by somebody who would be quote unquote behavioral. And that's not, you know, this is kind of my wheelhouse at, there, but you see this kind of in many fields. Like, so Ben Handel is a health economist at Berkeley. He's been doing behavioral, quote unquote, since since the beginning, but he's right. not, you know, in a behavior, behavioral science group or anything like that. He's just a great health economist who recognizes that people have a hard time making health insurance choices. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. that's... Oh, go ahead, Mr. Hulan. Well, go. Well, it, it is... We're, we're in this place where where we don't have that full integration, where there is still a sense of um, separation in, in the world of behavioral science, uh, especially within behavioral economics. And in, in my new role uh, in uh, working for a bank in the, in the Southeast, the company is trying to integrate behavioral sciences, integrate behavioral economics into the decision making. Could you imagine in a corporate world that eventually it disappears as well? Do you think that uh, in the corporate life we might just it might just be ameliorated completely because it gets absorbed much like advertising did in the 1960s and 70s kind of just absorbed a lot of psychological information mm-hmm. but didn't actually have a psychology department. Yeah, I think I think certainly that's happening more and more and I mean um, if you talk to financial professionals, risk managers a lot of them have techniques that are just like straight out of behavioral economics, mm-hmm. right? So the famous kind of, I, I, I don't know about the veracity of the story. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't hold my feet to the fire, but the, in Goldman Sachs where they used to kind of, if, if a trader was, uh, you know, if they had a position, they would switch people's positions randomly just so they don't get too attached to a portfolio. So they don't chase their losses for, mm. or, or th- something like that. That's that's straight out of a, be- a behavioral economics textbook, right? Yeah. Um, so, and this has been going on for a long time. So, uh, there are behavioral econ folks managing groups, which I think is a great thing, uh, especially for like kind of 
auditing the decision making of your traders or your professionals or something like that. So I know I know many big corporations have those sorts of roles. Um, the extent to which they keep being called behavioral scientists or behavioral economists, I don't know the extent to that to which that's going to hold. But I think those sorts of roles are are here to stay. I think it's really interesting too that as you're talking about this integration into academics, right? That all right, finance is has this behavioral economic component. And we go into others, you're talking about health and, you know, those pieces that the people who are being taught and then going into these organizations are going to have a, a better understanding. And, and to the point, Tim, and I've talked about this in the past, too, is, you know, I often see behavioral science, behavioral economics as people on the street are doing it naturally. It's just and, and we're putting labels and kind of understanding mm-hmm. it to a little degree. It's the the restaurant who puts people up front into the window when they first come in as opposed to in the back and they do it not because they know, Oh, social proof is here. I'm, I'm going to get mm-hmm. more people because of social proof. They just go, it works. I get more people when I put people up in front and, and um, you know, we're just putting things behind it. But I think as the education system starts to integrate this, that people will become aware and be understanding why some of that does and might be able to, um, think about things from a different perspective and maybe be more purposeful about some of those in that work environment. And hopefully that leads to better things around the, you know, not just business-wise, but just, you know, society-wise and other aspects as well. Right. I think the main difference is the formalism and the data. Uh, I think a lot of people have these intuitions. I don't think behavioral economists or behavioral scientists have been, you know, you, let's talk about this exclusivity thing, right? Yeah. So people have been doing ex, like exclusive marketing and scarcity marketing. We did not invent this, <laughs> yeah. uh, right? To, yeah. to, to, to put it's it like, mildly, oh, this is brand new. Here we go. Yeah, like, to put it mildly, is, yeah. You know what we did is we wrote down a model that would generate this prediction. We wrote down implications for markets. It made new predictions of when you you might see it, when you're not going to see it, and then we you know we we ran experiments to see what this the, the relative size of this effect would be. Um, so it's it, that that's kind of the way that I view it as the integration with a, with uh, with academics and with kind of making this a more uh, making behavioral science, behavioral economics a more um, not not just PhDs obviously with master's degrees and uh, BAs uh, be, be making it more quantitative yeah. is, the, is the big advantage. Yeah, it it really is. This is a, a slightly off uh, the straight behavioral discussion, but you've been doing a lot of work recently in discrimination, mm-hmm. and um, and you you've noted how you're really passionate about it. Can you share a little bit about some of the things that the research that you're doing is revealing? Yeah. So one of the first papers that. Uh, I published with Aislinn Boren and uh, and Michael Rosenberg was on looking at the dynamics of discrimination. So a lot of the research in social science and discrimination has kind of t- taken this kind of static approach. So the famous kind of audit or correspondence study where you send out a bunch of resumes that are exactly the same, other than the name being kind of stereotypically African-American or white and seeing what is the difference in callback rates, right? Everything is constant except for the name. And you see that the, the African-American resume gets, you know, 20, 30% fewer uh, callbacks. And, you know, you, you say like, look, there's discrimination. So what we were thinking about was the fact that uh, discrimination evolves over time, 
right? Mm. So at some point you might get in an, or, in like let's say a pipeline in an organization, you might get discrimination earlier on at the kind of the initial hiring stage. So African-Americans are less likely to be called back for an interview than, than white people. Then, But then let's say what happens at that interview stage. Let's say there is an African-American at the interview stage, or let's say there's gender discrimination. Let's say there is a woman at the at the interview stage, and let's say there's a man at the interview stage. What happens then? How do these evaluators, potentially knowing that they're with discrimination earlier, how do they start evaluating these candidates? And you could take that very far within the organization. Who are you promoting, knowing that there's discrimination in the pipeline or not knowing that there's discrimination in the pipeline? Mm. So it turns out that this has several implications. One, that discrimination at any slice of time could be driven by earlier discrimination. So for example, let's say I find that there is no discrimination when I expected discrimination. Is Should I conclude that everything is fine or should I conclude that, hey, maybe people are updating to the fact that, look, these are these people have been discriminated in the past, and now I'm kind of adjusting for it. So there is a ton of discrimination in the organization or in the pipeline, but just at this one slice, there's no discrimination. So what we basically did was we ran a big field experiment on an online platform where people basically, it's a Q&A platform that's used by millions of users, five or six million of users every year. And we created accounts that either were male accounts or female accounts. And as you, which was basically signaled by their name. And then these individ, these uh, uh, people on this website, as they post more and more, they get visible reputation when they have a good post. Mm-hmm. So what we did in our experiment is essentially we uh, we took our, our accounts and we got more and more reputation on these accounts. So we had some accounts that were brand new accounts, male versus female, and other, other accounts male versus female, but these were high reputation accounts, top 25% on the platform. So what we found was that initially women were discriminated against a lot. When If you're a new woman on this website, you are getting less reputation for the same post as a man. But what we found is as you progress through that pipeline, that discrimination decreased and actually women at the high reputation accounts were actually favored over the men. Hmm. And one conclusion would be like, hey, everything kind of washes out. But that's not the right conclusion because there were fewer women at this high level. They were wiped out throughout the pipeline. There was a leaky pipeline, right? So they were discriminated against. So there were fewer of them who were able to get to that stage. And even though they were ended up being favored, you can look at those statistics on the website itself. There were like 30% of women starting out, and there were only 5% of women at these high reputation thresholds, right? So if I just ran an experiment where I just ha- like went to the end and I'm like, oh, let's nice. go here. I'm like, oh, there's no gender discrimination. Women are actually favored. This is a great platform for women, which would be the wrong conclusion. Mm. Understand. So when you're starting and you're doing this experiment, male, female posters out there, it's the same post that you're, you're mm-hmm. putting out and you're seeing and you're seeing which ones get. Exactly. It was full randomization. We had, we had a bunch of accounts. We had over 300 different accounts. Okay. And we randomized posts across these accounts and we were able to do kind of regular statistics. Yeah. But that's exactly right. Everything was held constant uh, other than the names and the reputation. Wow. Wow. That, that's amazing. I, this was particularly interesting when you brought this up, when you brought discrimination up earlier, because I noticed that the, the woman who Emmett, who was basically uh, the one who brought charges against Emmett Till, just died uh, in the past couple of days. And 
it, it, the, it still just amazes me that, you know, just some 60 years ago that uh, a, a white jury uh, let off two white men who killed a 14-year-old black boy uh, in an hour. And they, they're like, uh, no, not guilty. Uh, even though uh, they did it, and of course they even went on went into Life magazine uh, a year later and uh, said, "Yeah, we we did it. Yeah, we 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 just want to let you know that we actually did that." And uh, and and, uh, and our world is different today, but it's not different enough. <laughs> when when you're talking about just just men and women, regardless of of uh, color, right? That that just even between men and women, we weed out the pipeline weeds out women earlier in the process than it does mm-hmm. men. Um, and that, uh, sorry, I just had to just get that. Yeah. Off yeah. No, I mean, that this is, this is something that, you know, and we have, we have follow-up work uh, with Aislinn Bourne and Peter Hall on uh, oh, actually great. looking at systemic discrimination, which is building on this, uh, this, the, the dynamic paper that I, uh, that I described, but really uh, thinking about what is the difference between kind of these direct for- sources of discrimination where you have keeping everything constant versus systemic discrimination, where basically we make the argument that if you really want to think about discrimination in a, in a system, you have to think about total discrimination. Mm. Because these things that you're keeping constant, quote unquote, have discrimination baked into them. Yeah, give, so, give me an example of what, what, what you mean is total discrimination. So what I mean by total discrimination is people starting out with the same capabilities or the same qualifications for a job. And then they present to themselves themselves to uh, to an evaluator, like to a, an employee, and they're getting discriminated against. So one group is getting discriminated against, but actually they're not just the things. They're not just differing based on their race or gender. They're also differing in the sort of things that the evaluator sees, like their education or their zip code, uh, or and the argument is that the things that they might be differing on once you control for them, maybe discrimination goes away. This is the famous kind of argument in economics that if we control for enough stuff, oh, discrimination goes away. And then there's no discrimination. What we're arguing in the paper is that you that that's kind of missing the point. This yeah. is a big, big uh, debate in kind of the gender wage gap literature that if you look at women who are at the exact same rank, making the exact same decisions as the men, the gender wage gap decreases. The problem is that it's harder for women to get to those career paths. You're controlling for the things that have discrimination in them. <laughs> so that's not the proper analysis. Right. And that we, you know, we wrote a whole paper about this, basically. Uh, Linda Babcock's ar- argument for, for some time, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we're not the first to make this argument again. We're just, we're, the, the paper is essentially a, a toolkit for, uh, for providing econometrics and theoretical tools for you to kind of formalize it. And again, bring to, to try to measure quantitatively the systemic forces. We're not at all the first people to start they, they talking about systemic discrimination. There's decades of literature. We're, we're kind of providing the, the econometric tools to, to, to measure. And I think from an application perspective, as we think about this, the more work that like you're doing and that others are doing around this, it can, again, the argument inside of organizations is, uh, oh, well, we put this in place and therefore we are now okay. And mm-hmm. I think the argument that you're saying is, no, you have to look. I mean, it it, it starts before you. Uh, yes. it, it probably it, there might be other parts beyond what the this little intervention is that you put in place that might, as you said, die, that static piece 
given the whatever that is, you know, we, we put a DEI, you know, system in so that we are no longer discriminating on names on, on when applications come in. So therefore we are going to be better. But to that point, that doesn't solve the issue. Right, that there, exactly. there are other factors. And so it means that we just have to take a deeper look. Right. And I mean, people have been kind of ringing this bell for a long time. So Sandy Darity, Derek Hamilton, there's folks, um, you know, Lisa Cook's been doing really good work on this. There's people have been making these points for a long time uh, that um, these these sorts of band-aids and stop gaps are not really enough when there's these systemic and structural forces at play. Uh, and we, therefore, we this is the this is the place where policy plays a big role because an organization is just one piece in the system. We can't expect single organizations to be able to kind of fix these things. You need yeah. kind of an overarching framework to think about it. Yeah. And we're we're basically we're a small piece in the puzzle of trying to provide the tools for quantifying it. It kind of makes me think about where where do we need to go? What will help, I don't know, solve? Is that too <laughs> big of a word? But there's more and more data being compiled. Mm -hmm. There's lots of evidence. There's a lot of research. Um, it doesn't seem to be enough. Data's good, right? But it's also, <laughs> I don't want to say data's also bad, but um, you know, you have this algorithm, you have this, again, a very related literature in computer science on algorithmic fairness. Yeah. And the entire idea is that, hey, if you train an algorithm on a biased data set, that algorithm is going to exacerbate that <laughs> yeah. bias by, and it, the problem right. is, it's going to scale it. Yeah. Oh. And that's a whole new problem because at some point you, maybe you had like one biased guy. I'm not going to say it's one biased guy. It's a lot of biased guys, but it's, it's, it, it's, but they're it, distributed. Not, yeah. They're distributed here. You have an algorithm that you, that you're rolling out to every criminal court in the country. And if it's got bias baked into it, you're, you're scaling the hell out of it. Yeah. So Diag Davenport, who's um, was was a PhD student in our department. Now he's a he's a postdoc at Princeton. He has this great paper with some co-authors on basically the idea that uh, if you have human decision making combined with algorithms, that could actually if, when you give people access to algorithms, that could actually exacerbate bias if they essentially kind of use the algorithms when they want to discriminate. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so there's it's a it's it's a, we're we're in the uh, we're we're in the great unknown here, uh, and uh, we got to be real careful. It, it just when you said that, it reminded we've talked to a number of different um, people on conspiracy theories and different um, aspects along that, and one of the pieces that they've talked about with uh, you know you used to have the conspiracy theorist that was getting up on the soapbox in the middle of the town, but it was one guy yes, up on yes, in that town. Yes, yes. And you kind of, you know, social pressure was like, ah, I might, oh, it sounds interesting, but no, he's the crazy guy. He's crazy yeah. Bob. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy Bob. We don't, you know, you know, but, but now with social media and some of the algorithms, like we can find, there's a lot of, you know, crazy Bob in every town adds up to a lot of crazy Bob. Ooh, so it's, it's a big, it's a big Bob. And so now it's like crazy Bob isn't so it's like, oh, well, maybe Bob has something, you know, if I'm, you know, just maybe interested in something or, or some questioning piece of that. And it goes into that. It's kind of that algorithm again piece. And so it's kind of like that I can find the algorithm to support my belief and whatever I want to do. And there it, it kind of compounds that belief. I can compound the racist kind of elements, the discriminatory right. pieces that I want to do. 
because I can say, hey, point here. Look, this I'm not doing it. This is right. And and also it's like, you know, I, this is the you guys are all uh, active on Twitter as well. The thing that I least like about it is like, you know, some random person on the Internet says something. And without the Internet, it would be some random person saying that to themselves in the shower. <laughs> Bob, Bob is talking to himself <laughs> in the Bob middle of the square. Bob is talking to himself yeah. again. But now and then all of these well-meaning people start quote tweeting being like, who's this crazy person? By the way, they're still just like a crazy person. It's fine. <laughs> Leave them alone. But no, let's talk about the fact that they're crazy. And most people see that and they're like, oh, that, that guy is crazy. Ha ha. But then some people are like, oh, yeah. man, some, I haven't thought about it that way. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're laughing okay. in a oh. really sad laugh way <laughs> because it is, that, yeah. I, I agree with you. Oh. It's just, it's like they get a, they get amplified. Voices exactly. that should not get amplified, get amplified, not, and always, sometimes not intentionally. It, it is, you are pushing this to say exactly. this is wrong and but by pushing you're giving that, them a platform yeah 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 okay we started the conversation with dylan and tom waits and you very quickly chose dinner with tom waits over over bob dylan because of a particular quote is that right yeah he's got this he's got this quote that i think about all the time uh because you know he plays his own instruments in many of the albums and the yeah. instruments change yeah and he's got this quote about his hands being like dogs and they get tired that you train them and then they get kind of lazy. So you kind of have to, in order to keep going, you have to kind of train them on new things and familiar and uh, unfamiliar things in order to stay creative. Basically. Uh, I don't, the quote is long, so I'm not going to try to reproduce it, but it's essentially saying like, you got to keep trying new things in order to stay present. And that's been kind of like my uh, uh, my my philosophy for research to some extent. I like const, you know, what I don't like staying in like a little area. At some point, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna tr- learn something new because every yeah. third or fourth paper, I just you know go in a slightly different field, and then I have to read that whole field, and I have to learn where where the cutting edge is and train myself on that. And that's been really f- int- kept things really interesting for me. Yeah, I, I mean, you have a painting of the father of the beat generation behind you. you know? <laughs> I mean, talk about you know wanting to explore new ideas. I I, I certainly see that. Uh, I, I get that. I, you know, I also you, you see that with a lot of singer songwriters, David Crosby or Joni Mitchell, continue to explore songwriting mm-hmm. from changing the tunings on their guitars. Right, and and a lot of instrument, a lot of musicians talk about getting inspired by different kinds of instruments right you know that they have a guitar that does this or a guitar that does that or or a saxophone that sounds a particular way and so they go to that for that inspiration right have you been in that mode yourself yeah i mean i'm i'm constantly trying to i mean i i don't have to i i my personality is kind of conducive to that sort of thing where i'm like i i i, I don't have to try to get interested in something different I just get interested and I'm like, wait, I don't know anything about this yet. And then I have to learn it, which takes time. And like, you know, uh, obviously I'm, I, I make dumb decisions and I have <laughs> stupid opinions for a long time, but eventually it, it, it gets there. And it, it uh, and I, I, I think that's kind of like, that's been my kind of approach to, to research. And I think I relate to, relate to that a lot. So that's why I want to keep, I want to have dinner with Tom. 
Yeah. All right. So you mentioned there was the quote, though, from Bob. So what mm-hmm. was the quote from Bob? That it's a little cliche, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say it. Uh, it's I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. <laughs> great line. Yeah. My back pages. My back pages. Yeah, it, yeah. It's it's a, it's a terrific song. It's a great line. I mean, it's a great line. I yeah. think about it a lot. So it's like you know, I have a lot of I, uh, you know, there's a lot of amazing quotes from Dylan, like electricity howling in the bones of her face. That's a, of Joanna. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think I every time I listen to that song, I'm like, I get goosebumps. I'm like the the, the, mm-hmm. the visuals, but it's not like a quote that's like inspiring my life. It's just a quote. <laughs> no, no, but he he turned phrases. It ain't me, babe. You yeah. know, something as simple as is is that you just mm-hmm. and in that song, he just warps the the whole idea of of relationship. Okay. But how does that compare? You recently tweeted that you found on the street, a copy of the yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Show your bones from like, like this is a gold lion pop, you know, post-punk band. (laughs) And, uh, and like uh, you said, it was one of your favorite bands. Oh yeah. The yeah, yeah, yes. is one of my favorites. I grew up in, you know, I I came of age in the early two thousands. So if somebody was like, what are the formative bands? I mean, it's the yeah, 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 it's the strokes. It's, yep. you know, the vines, the white stripes, uh, the la- yeah. last cool bastion of New York music, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and a bunch of New Yorkers are going to like come in. Yeah. I was going to say, we're going to have a whole bunch of comments on what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, that's a lie. There's been there. I mean, I'd say like, you know, the cool music is coming out of the UK right now, but you know, so who are you listening to now? Who's some new stuff? So my favorite band's probably Fontaine's DC. They just had this incredible album last year. They're a band from Dublin. They're very, okay. uh, very Irish. They they started out as poets. They were like exchanging, you know, little stanzas in the pub, and then they they have this incredible band. Uh, super prolific. They've been around for only like four years, and they already have these three incredible albums. Yeah, they're 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 amazing. I think it's amazing that uh, Irish, you know, poets could uh, have enough time to exchange stanzas between bar fights. <laughs> I, I think that that's fantastic. I, I, my 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 wife is half Irish, so I'm not going to any any statements against the Irish on this on this podcast. Our producer Mary Califf is 100 percent Irish, and she's going to be giving me all kinds of hell for that. Yeah, but. well, the name like Cool Hand, you're okay. I think you can... <laughs> I'm coming you, from you, an insider's perspective. On yeah, that, but. there you go. So how did you get a hold of these guys? I think like I went through like a bit of a phase where I wasn't listening to new music. And during the pandemic, I just like started becoming very systematic about random stuff. And one of them is like, all right, I'm done with this like old music, which was like from 2010. Like <laughs> uh, what, like Phoebe but, Bridgers and Connor Oberst? And yeah, like so I was the, I was really into them. Yeah. I, I'm still, you know, I'm still really into them, and I'm still still listening to Bright Eyes. Unfortunately, yep. yeah. some might say, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I was just I kind of felt like in a music rut, so I was like, I'm going to listen to an album a week, a new album all the way through, and then I found uh, Fontaine's DC. I, I found. Um, a bunch of other bands through that sort of process. And I just got, got kind of got on this kick of 
this really exciting new music happening. Uh, mostly in the UK, there's there's a bunch of bands in the in the in the states that I'm that I'm excited about too. But uh, yeah, it's been really fun. It's been really fun. That's good. That that's good. Well, we are always happy to uh, to to connect, Alex. It's always fun to catch up on what you're doing and what you're listening to. Thank you. Thanks for being a guest today. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Alex, have a free flowing discussion and talk about whatever else comes into our just blown away minds. Man, he is so smart. He's really inspiring in in many ways, but there's just some things that I'm never going to be able to do. I can't put things together the way he does. I mean, it's pretty great. A musician, artist, you know, poetry. I mean, my God, it's just a renaissance gentleman who is just fascinating to talk to. I just, oh my gosh, I just, it's every single time. Yeah, Yeah, first generation immigrant, like, man, he's just inspiring. Yeah. And and, and you people, you did not see, he had this cool ass picture behind him that he had painted. It was just absolutely wonderful. Anyway, all right. What did you take, Mr. Houlihan? What did you take from this conversation? We could talk for hours, but just what's, Keep it short. One thing. The one thing that I really want to focus on is his discrimination research, right? To this labor economics approach to just looking at the big picture. He's zooming out in a way, uh, uh, thinking about discrimination in a way that I don't. I don't think other authors have done so. Other researchers haven't done it, and and he really does a great job of debunking that classic resume study. Well, that sort of implies that well, if we can just get beyond the resume, then discrimination is over. Yeah. Not right. debunking that, that there's, there's discrimination in the resume, no, that, but, yeah. the, but the idea that if we <laughs> can get over it. that, then we've, yes. we've achieved the big piece. And I think that's really important is that this idea that looking at the overall organization and all of the points of discrimination and how they, mm-hmm. um, in and, in and of itself, you know, it might be a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, but they add up to a huge component when it comes down to the impact that those small discriminations have. And I think that uh, I think is just huge. This idea that total discrimination is bigger than just who gets hired. Right. 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 And that flowed beautifully into this discussion about how gender discrimination is really strong in the beginning, but that gets decreased over time. And the problem with that image is that, fewer women are in the pipeline by the end. Yeah. Like the the deeper you go into the organization, then the you know the higher up you go into the organization, the fewer women there are. So guess what? They're they're you know tough as hell. They negotiate the daylights out of their out of their contracts. There there's very little gender uh you know discrimination based on gender when you get to the C suite. But it's the middle managers and and the the tremendous number of women who are occupying you know, tons and tons of roles between just getting hired and uh, ending up in the C-suite that there is still a sense of uh, discrimination uh, on a salary basis. On a salary. And I think there's still discrimination, just maybe not as much as at the beginning. And so this idea that that is still happening. But as you said, the the bigger pieces, like those steps to there. So we look at, I mean, you look out at the number of C-suite executives 
that are female versus male in Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies. And the ratio is abysmal, right? It is. You look at minorities in C-suite positions uh, at corporate 500 or Fortune 1000 companies. Again, that ratio to white males is abysmal. And we know that. Everybody sees that. What I think what Alex and, and his cohorts are doing is kind of identifying and putting some really specifics around why that is happening. And then that allows us to better solve for that issue, which I think is just fantastic. So it is, uh, it is great. I mean, to think that here we are, and it's just been in the last five or six years that uh, Shelly Archambault has become the first black female CEO of a tech company. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, episode wow. 204 by the way for folks who oh. are listening um <laughs> we talked with done. shelly but my god you know i mean that's we we have a long way to go uh, there, there's another little comment that alex made very quickly that i wanted to call attention to and that's when he said that racial discrimination discrimination is driven by animus but gender discrimination is driven by social norms and i think that this is one of the things that's really contributing to uh how women sort of get uh, that cast aside within the corporate culture because it's it's the social norms of the corporate culture that's driving this gender-based discrimination. Well, and that goes into even the things like we talked with Linda Babcock about the no club, right? This idea yeah, that yeah. who gets asked to do those non-promotable tasks? It is women. And they they actually, you know, the social norm is that they volunteer for those more so than men do. And so they're spending more of their time doing non-promotable tasks, which means what? They don't get promoted. And so by not getting promoted, the it's that little discrimination pieces that add up to a big element. They're spending hours a week on the corporate party or making sure that the whatever spreadsheet is right and various different pieces. And so, yeah. Can I just uh, say one other thing that I was happy to hear Alex comment on when we were talking about Enber, which is the national board of economic research that he just said that he's seeing a higher representation of behavioral papers within the economic ecosystem. Yeah. It just, it just a nice little note, right? I which, think that that's a good thing. Well, and, and, you know, this, this idea of, of Richard Thaler's that, Hey, Behavioral yeah. economics is just going to be economics. And and we've talked about this and others is not just in economics, but how does behavioral science get integrated throughout both corporate, but also what I think is really interesting from some of Alex's conversation is in academia as well, that we're starting, that the insights aren't granted. We need to keep doing research specifically around that, but those insights also need to be integrated into those fields and different pieces. So, yeah. all right. So I, thanks for Alex uh, for joining us again and to talk about the Sloan Fellowship and his work on discrimination. Loved it. it. Very, yeah, just loved it. And another thank you to Groovers Jim Nelson and Tony Navarra. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz was not a jingle for Pepto-Bismol. It was for Alka-Seltzer. Mm-hmm. We're not too young, we're too old. Yeah. <laughs> and our brains have just fizzled. <laughs> I think they have. Fizzled, fizz, fizz. They plop, yeah. plopped, and they fizzed, fizz. That's what our brains did. Uh, and Jim Nelson is very happy that I had that breakdown because he he definitely let me know. So there we go. Um, with that, we hope that you are able to give some consideration to where discrimination is hiding in plain sight. 
in your own organization and that when you find that and uncover it, that it helps you this week as you go out and find your group.